Thank you for joining us for this second message from the book of Habakkuk, found at the end of your Old Testament amongst the 12 minor prophets. The title of the series is From Anxiety to Adoration. On December 23, 1776, at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, Thomas Paine wrote these words, These are the times that try men's souls. For most of the Revolutionary War, the Americans were losing the battle. Indeed, their souls and their minds and their wills were being tested. In the north, the British Army occupied cities such as New York City. And it looked like the British would win the war and the Founding Fathers would be hung. Paine wrote this line in order to convince the Patriots to stay the course and to continue the fighting. It's interesting that just eight years later, after the birth of our nation, Thomas Jefferson wrote, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Now, last week we saw Habakkuk wrestling with God looking at his country's idolatry and immorality, and he was rather perplexed by the seemingly indifference of God when just a few years before, Judah enjoyed 31 years of peace and prosperity and blessing under the leadership of King Josiah. Within three to six years after Josiah's godly reign, the glory of God was no longer prevalent in the land of Israel. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, Habakkuk was trembling for his country. Let's remember the spiritual journey of Habakkuk as he moves from anxiety to adoration, as seen on this chart. In chapter 1, we see him anxious, He's looking at the situation surrounding him. He is perplexed by God, and he is wrestling with God. This morning, we'll see him looking up with acceptance, and he's pondering God as he waits on him. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll see Habakkuk in adoration as he praises God and looks ahead with the promises of God as his anchor. I don't know which stage of this journey you find yourself on, but at the same point, we have all been frustrated at one time or another. No doubt we have even prayed fervently about the situation. And sometimes just nothing seems to change. The COVID-19 situation is on all of our hearts and minds. It affects every one of us. And if I were just to be very frank this morning, I confess that I'm weary of even talking about it, except in the context of the truth that the Lord is with us and we must trust him by faith and not lose hope. I know that many have lost their jobs. With some, there might be major conflict in the marriage. Others see their children or grandchildren making decisions that are not wise and so in the heart, it carries a heavy burden with the normal stresses that go with isolation. Habakkuk was perplexed with God. He wondered, does God really even care? Is he aware 
of what's going on and why doesn't he do something. He asks questions like, how long, O Lord? And why is this happening to us? And so God answers him and tells him that he's been working out his providential plan whereby he would use a godless nation, the Chaldeans, Babylon, to bring chastisement upon the Jewish nation. Well, rather than solve the problem, that brought about Habakkuk's second objection. And this has to do with the question, how could a holy God use a nation more wicked than Judah to be the chastening rod of the Lord. Now Habakkuk's charge goes from God being inactive and indifferent, and now the charge even becomes that, God, you are inconsistent. So let's look at the first point as we get to verses 12 to 13, where we see the argument to God. While Habakkuk is perplexed about God's ways and his will, he makes a very wise decision. Please hold on to this because I can only hope and pray that we will follow his example. It's so important. When you or I are facing any perplexing situation, instead of focusing on what you don't know, uh, how long and why, look to the Lord and his word and focus on what you do know, and especially about the Lord. It's kind of like Habakkuk's been standing on thin ice, and he knows it. And he needs to get his feet on solid rock, on a firm foundation. We love to sing how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you? than that which he hath said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Habakkuk now is wisely pondering what he knows about God. What does he know? Well, let's look at his knowledge of God. Habakkuk 1.12 says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Note the first thing he mentions is the eternity of God. It's the first thought that comes to his mind. Now, eternity is that realm in which God lives. It's not just extended time. It's much more important than that. God is not limited nor bound by time. God not only knows everything that's going to happen in time, but it is part of his divine providential sovereign plan. And even with that thought, you could feel the, the feet under, the ground underneath of Habakkuk's feet getting a, a, just a little bit more of a firm foundation. I'll tell you, there's nothing more reassuring in the midst of a time of confusion going around us than to stand on solid ground and be able to say one thing I know, my God is eternal. My God is outside the flux of history. My God was around before history ever began and it will be around after it's gone and all in between at this thing that we know time, God is working out his divine plan and purposes. Tremendous truth. I know my God has an eternal plan because he's eternal. Number two, he brings us to the aseity of God. Now don't let the word scare you. Aseity simply means 
that God is self-existent, that God is self-sufficient. In fact, Habakkuk uses the word Yahweh, Jehovah in verse 2, O Lord, my God. This is the name God revealed to Moses when Moses was commissioned to go and lead the children of Israel out of 430 years of bondage in Egypt. And, and Moses is intimidated. He says, who shall I say hath sent me? And the Lord answered him, I am that I am. Jehovah, Yahweh, that's the aseity of God. On Good Friday, like many of you, I was reflecting on the last hours of the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering and his death on the cross. And I was especially meditating in John 18 at the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know the story well. In the night, the band of soldiers came. Based upon the different words in the text, by the way, it seems there could have been 200, but as many as 1,200 soldiers just coming from for the one lowly Nazarene. So they come with their torches. Judas identified Jesus with a betrayal kiss. Jesus says, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Then remember what Jesus said? The King James says, he said, I am he. No, he is in italicized mark. What he said was, I am. The same thing God said 1,500 years earlier to Moses when he asked, who has sent me? I am that I am. They came looking for a lowly Nazarene, and they found the omnipotent creator of the universe. And the scriptures say in John 18 that immediately the soldiers fell on their back because something of the glory of God and the omnipotence of God was revealed at that time. Then Jesus caring for his disciples. Notice who's in control. He looks at all these soldiers and he says, let these go. That is my disciples. Caring for them, even while they are taking him away to crucify him. And he still is in charge, my friend. He's still in control. Habakkuk is getting more assured as the ground gets firmer underneath him. But notice he's not done. Let me read again verses 12, 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why then do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now he moves on to the holiness of God. But as he contemplates the holiness of God, it raises the dilemma. It brings up the question. That is, how can a holy God look upon, let alone use, these sinful people from Babylon? By the way, he's not saying God cannot look on sin. Why, nothing is hidden from his eyes. God knows every thought. Every action, every intent, every motive of our mind and heart. But he cannot look with approval on sin. His eyes are pure and he cannot approve of what he sees. So Habakkuk is determined that his God is eternal. He's self-existent and that he's holy, but he's not done yet. He's got something else that he knows about his God. Look at verse 12. You have appointed them for judgment, O rock. You have marked them for correction. This speaks to the immutability 
of God. It simply means he cannot change. The term rock was first applied to the Lord in Deuteronomy 32.4 in the Song of Moses. A rock pictures stability, security, and endurance. He, God, the rock, is not going to change as to his purpose or as to his eternal plan, which brings about the words in verse 12, we shall not die. And that leads to the fifth thing he knows about God, and that is the faithfulness of God. I just love the progression of Habakkuk's thinking. The eternity of God linked to his aseity and his holiness and his immutability secures our thinking that God will keep his promises because he's faithful. He'll keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the covenant people Israel. Indeed, he says with great confidence now, we shall not God die. God made the covenant to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through his seed. He said he would come through the root of David. He would be of the tribe of Judah, even our Lord Jesus Christ. During our times of perplexity, focus, my friend, upon the person of God and Christ. That'll keep your feet on solid ground. I love the story one pastor told about an old Indian that used to come to church a few years ago, and he'd get there every Sunday morning a half hour early. And he would go down to the front pew, and he would sit there in silence for a half an hour long before others were there. And one deacon began wondering why he always came early, and so he went up to him, and he says, why do you always come early? And the old Indian had three phrases. I love them. He says, one, me come early. Two, me sit down. And this one I love, the third one, me think Jesus. Don't you like that? You see, if you can step back from the problem, not focus on what you don't know, but focus on what you do know about God in Christ, you've got the answer right there in your hand. Now let's move to the second thing, and that is his question to God in verses 14 to 17. Habakkuk now is moving from the faithfulness of God to the frailty of his people. Let me read verses 14 to 17. It'll be on the screen as well. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, and he makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Now, last Sunday, we saw Habakkuk likening the Babylonians to animals. Animals like horses, leopards, and wolves. But in these verses, he likens the people of Judah to fish. Talk about frailty. We're just helpless fish with no protection whatsoever. You catch one fish at a time by the hook, he mentions that, but then you catch the multitudes, they, they get caught up into the, to the net. God, are we just like a bunch of fish? Don't you care about your people? One of the neat things we do when we're in Israel, we did last June as well, 
It's when you're out on the Sea of Galilee, out on the boat, we stop the engine, we have a time of worship. But then at the end, the uh, people tending the boat, they show how they fished 2,000 years ago, and they cast the nets out, as you can see in the picture on the screen, uh, so we could see how they caught the fish. And then they're, they're swooped up by a net. Well, like the disciples of old, these men didn't catch anything that day either. But you know, it raises that question in Habakkuk's mind. Am I just like those fish down in the Sea of Galilee? You just throw the nets in and hundreds come out and no one cares about them. No one knows who they are. Is that who we are to you, Lord? Are we so cheap that you just allow the Babylonians to swoop down on us and kill your people? So, Lord, what do you have to say about that? And that brings us to chapter 2. So now we go to the answers from God. We've seen the argument now uh, of Habakkuk, now the answers from God. Habakkuk had argued that God was indifferent, inactive, and even inconsistent. Now he makes another wise decision, and it might be along with the one we just discussed of the knowledge of God, the most important of his ministry. Let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now in verse 3, Habakkuk is told, if it seems slow, wait for it. He's like a sentinel, a standing guard. He places himself on the ramparts detecting for the first signs of an approaching enemy. All of us who have been in the military remember pulling guard duty. And brother, you better stay awake. You better wait and you better watch and you better know that password because in the middle of the night, the officer of the day is going to show up. You don't know when. And he's going to make sure that you're watching and you're alert and that you're faithful. So the first answer to Habakkuk's question is this, to wait. So he's answering concerning Habakkuk right now. Then he'll answer concerning the Chaldeans. Wisdom says, wait and watch, and then walk in obedience to him. You know, the first verse I memorized when I became a Christian was Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord, and be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. While Hudson Taylor didn't understand why he had to wait for six years on the east side of London in the slums in order to fulfill his calling to go to China and establish the China Inland Mission. He was in a time of perplexity, but pondering God. And then he wrote these wonderful words. Listen to them, if you would. In every life, there's a pause that is better than onward rush. Better than hewing or mightiest doing, tis the standing still at sovereign will. There's a hush that is better than ardent speech, better than sighing or wilderness crying, tis the being still at sovereign will. The pause and the hush sing a double song in unison low and for all time long. Oh, human soul, God's working plan goes on, nor needs the aid of man. Stand still and steal, be still and know. Good advice for us. There's a lot of noisy gongs. There's a lot of loud drum beats, various opinions around us. We need to take time away from the cosmos to be still and know that he is God and to wait on him. Back, it says, I'm going to wait. 
I'm going to wait for the voice of God. So crucial. Then we see, secondly, watch. You wait, you watch. Don't miss it in verse 2. And the Lord answered me. How precious. The Lord answered me when, Habakkuk? After he had waited. God said a number of things Habakkuk needed to hear. God knew all about the Chaldeans. He knew all about their doom. He knows your enemy. He knows your frustration. Why is this happening? How long? Why, God, is this happening? God doesn't need me to inform him of one thing. Chaldeans are no problem to God. Never have been. They never will. Wait. Watch. Now he says, thirdly, it's a time to write. The vision unfolds in verses 2 to 4. I may be reading in the text here, but I think Habakkuk received the nod of approval from God as if to say, Habakkuk, I'm pleased that I found you waiting and watching and don't feel guilty about asking the questions. They're good questions, Habakkuk. And don't you feel guilty either about asking God questions. He can handle every one of them. So we read verses 3 to 4. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, I think there are two answers that God gives here. The first one is a message concerning the Chaldeans, and then the second one is a message concerning the people of faith. Notice the message concerning the Chaldeans. We don't have time to really uh, do it in depth in verses 5 through 20. But the words write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. It almost sounds like what we heard two weeks ago on Easter Sunday. The news of the resurrection. Write it down and then run and tell others the news. Some Hebrew scholars believe and they have a different bent on it. They think it means write it so the people can read it easily and then they can run and tell others. Verse 3 tells us the message of the vision. Habakkuk, the Chaldeans have an appointed time. And though they will be my tool to chastise the people of Judah, nevertheless, the Babylonian judgment will be much worse because they're going to be completely annihilated off the face of the earth. And if you know your history, you know that's exactly what happened. Certainly this was the answer Habakkuk wanted to hear. He wanted to know that God was still a righteous God who would not allow Babylonians to get away with the way they treated the people of God, Judah. What he said, what God said to Abraham 1,400 years earlier is true. I'll bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. We don't have time to look at them, but God gives five messages of woe to the Babylonians. Verse 5, woe to him who heats up what is not him. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Dr. Ron Blue of Dallas Theological Seminary points out the message of woe 
for their intimidation, their intemperance, their iniquity, their indignity, and finally their idolatry. All that is in those verses 5 to 20. But you be patient, Habakkuk. Every prophetic revelation demands a certain degree of patience. You must wait for his timing. And by the way, like many biblical prophecies, this not only has an immediate fulfillment when the Babylonians were destroyed in 539 BC by the Medes and the Persians, but a future fulfillment at the end of the tribulation period in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, you read about whom? Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And it seems to me there is no more reason to take Babylon figurative in Revelation 17 18 than to take her figurative here in Habakkuk 2. When the plain sense makes common sense, don't make it any other sense. And I'm sure this message of Habakkuk brought comfort to the people of Judah who were suffering in exile to know their barbaric captors with themselves in God's due time suffered divine retribution. By the way, this verse encouraged believers also 600 years later in the days of the apostles as recorded in Hebrews 10:37, where it says, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. One thing for certain, while the prophecy may be delayed, it will surely come to pass according to his perfect plan. May I add a word of caution to you at this time, because I'm seeing all over the internet and hearing so often that when unusual events, in this case, COVID-19, when unusual events happen in our world, there are many who start the countdown to the return of the Lord, trying to isolate the day when Christ is going to return. I want to give you a little principle that has, I think, held me in good stead through the years. Examine current events in the light of biblical prophecy. Do not read biblical prophecy into current events. The Lord may come today. He may not come for a thousand years. We do not know. Now, the second message is a message of assurance from God. And I'm borrowing Warden Wearsby's three points here. Wearsby comments, if you were to ask me what one of the most important verses in the Old Testament is, I would say Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So let's look now at the third and final point, the assurances from God. And I've got three of them for you in chapter 2. First of all, we see the assurance of grace in chapter 2, verse 4. You know, when you really get down to it, the spiritual life, while it can seem a little bit um, confounding, complex to some, the spiritual life is really pretty simple. This verse from Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted three times in the New Testament to show its importance, but each one with a different emphasis. For instance, follow the screen with me, where you see in that great book of how a man is justified, declared righteous before God, the book of Romans. The apostle Paul brings this out in Romans 1.17, and the emphasis is on justification. So the emphasis is on the word, the just. The just shall live by faith. Then he writes in the book of Galatians chapter 3, 
It's not so much how a man is justified, but once a man is justified, does he still live by faith? Saved by faith, does he live by faith? And that's the emphasis in Galatians, the just shall live by faith. And then the third time in Hebrews 10.38, the verse is used to introduce us to that great hall of faith chapter, chapter Hebrews 11. So the emphasis upon the just shall live by faith. Now there are only two alternatives. You either walk by faith, you live by faith, or you don't. You either have faith in Christ or you don't have faith in him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith means I simply take the word of God and I act upon it. It means I base my whole life on God. I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to trust God and God alone. Salvation comes to those who come to Christ by faith alone. And then we learn to walk by faith alone as well. Never doubt in the dark, my friend. What God has told you in the light Charles Spurgeon declared, I would sooner walk in the dark and hold hard to a promise of God than to trust in the light of the brightest day that ever dawned. I'd like to say a word of encouragement uh, to my friends at Osterville Baptist, members and regular attendees. Sometimes decisions are made, such as you were informed of last Monday, by the spiritual leadership at the church that surprise us, even catch us off guard, hit us on the blind side. We know next to nothing of the process. We don't know what transpired. We don't know even why a decision was made. We want to know more about the facts. We want to investigate. But sometimes that's not possible. And I even say it's not even appropriate. At times like this, I think God is asking us Myself and yourself, one question. Can you trust me to work through the leaders at Osterville Baptist Church, whom I have appointed and delegated my authority to, these very same pastors and elders whom you have affirmed by voting them into office? Now, you've heard me say many times from the pulpit at OBC that the one primary reason you join a local church is you're submitting yourself to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as he has delegated that authority to the pastors and elders in that local church who watch for over our souls. Hebrews 13, 17 gives us a good word. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. In other words, don't be a heartache to them. Don't give them a hard time. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I've been in spiritual leadership for over 50 years. And you know, sometimes spiritual leaders have to make a hard decision. And for multiple reasons, they cannot divulge all the facts or reasons that went into those decisions. So at a time like this, I must answer the question, Lord, do I trust you? Do I trust you to work through those you have appointed over me as my spiritual leaders? If I can trust you, God, for my eternal destiny, can I not trust you for the conducting of the ministries of my local church? And, oh, God is one justified by faith alone, 
I want to walk in that trust, believing you, trusting you, because why? The just shall live by faith. Let's look at the second assurance that comes here. It's the assurance of glory. Chapter 2, verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. These words were introduced uh, to the Jews who were being chastised in the wilderness wanderings and they wouldn't be permitted to enter the promised land. It was repeated by Moses in his great intercessory prayer in Numbers 14 for the Jewish people and for God to pardon their sins. The seraphim in Isaiah 6 who were viewing earth from heaven's balcony said the whole earth is full of his glory. And even after the crucifixion of the glory of God in Christ on earth, we know his promise that he's coming again. And what? Then the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the essence of his nature. It's the radiance of his intrinsic worth. And it's the sum total of all his attributes and graces. Let's never forget Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Going through a hard time, having a difficulty, perplexed by what's happening in your life and around you, 2 Corinthians 4.17 gives us this assurance. For this light momentarily affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The third and the last assurance is the assurance of government. Chapter 2, verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is on the throne. God loves. God cares for us. God is in his holy temple. The Babylonians destroyed the holy temple of God in Jerusalem in 586 B.C., but the temple in heaven cannot, will not be invaded. In God's perfect timing, All things will be made right when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth in power and in great glory. And he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And let all the earth keep silence before him in that great truth. Three closing thoughts for you to consider and take with you. Number one, faith does not live by explanations, but by promises. Number two. Faith does not live by appearances, but by providences. Number three, faith does not live by circumstances, but by praise. The just shall live by faith. I hope you've put your faith in Christ alone as your Savior. And then as your Savior, you're walking by faith, trusting solely in Him based upon His precious Word. God bless you, and thank you for listening.